Chapter 30 of A Mayfair Magician, A Romance of Criminal Science. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Fraser Shepherdson, Melbourne. A Mayfair Magician, A Romance of Criminal Science by George Griffith. Chapter 30. Fortunately, the Rowell Grovers were having an early, quiet dinner at home that night, prior to indulging in a couple of frivolous hours at the palace. They were naturally somewhat surprised to see Enstone, who was not expected back for three or four days. He apologised for the sudden invasion, introduced his friend Hargreaves, and with his usual directness, got to business at once. To his disgust, but not altogether to his astonishment, he learned that they knew nothing of Grace's departure for the continent. All Mrs. Grover could tell him was that the princess had brought a message from Grace to herself and Lady Georgina, to the effect that Grace had been a little overcome by the heat and had a headache, so she was lying down for half an hour with the princess's maid looking after her. And of course that settles it, said Enstone. If this trip had been all fair and square, Grace would certainly not have gone without sending me a wire, and she would certainly not have sent such a message as that to you. Instead of the princess brings you a message which is probably a lie, sends the carriage home for Lucy and some luggage, and vanishes. Now, my dear Mrs. Grover, is that the sort of thing that Grace would be likely to do? It is certainly very extraordinary, she replied, but the idea of her being taken away against her will, if that is what you mean, is surely out of the question. This is the twentieth century, you know, Mr. Enstone, not the eighteenth. Yes, he replied, but money can still work miracles. Quite so, said the colonel. But, my dear Enstone, people don't run such a tremendous risk as that of, well, if you like, we will say abducting, the wife of a millionaire and a member of parliament and one of the best-known women in society, without some very strong motive. And what earthly reason could Hedley Simmons and the princess have for such an amazing act, and on their own wedding trip, too? I think I can throw some light on that, replied Enstone. Then he gave them a rapid outline of his suspicions as to Simmons' identity with the desperado, Banfield, and the means he had taken to satisfy himself upon the point. Now, he continued, if I am right and he knows it, he is just the man to go to any length for either revenge or self-protection. But my dear fellow, said the colonel, granted all that, how could they possibly have got her away unless she had gone of her own free will? As Fanny said just now, you can't carry well-known women off to the coasts and put them on board a yacht, Vietnamis, nowadays, and, besides, they've gone to Paris. I have not the slightest doubt you will have a letter from her in the morning or a telegram. I wish I could believe it, replied Enstone, shaking his head. But I can't. Something bad has happened, I'm absolutely certain. I think Grace must have given me some of that queer power of second sight of hers, or else I got it from some northern ancestor, for I am absolutely certain that she is in danger, and great danger. Good heavens! I believe I've got it, he exclaimed, suddenly getting up from his chair. Got what? said Mrs. Grover. Second sight or an idea? Both, I think, he replied. The one suggested the other. That fellow, Isaiah Ramal at the Institute, I'm sure he has the same uncanny powers as that villain Halkine had, and at one time Grace was very susceptible to hypnotic influence or whatever the infernal thing is. Now, suppose they got her under Ramal's influence and suggested the trip to Paris. She would go just as though she went of her own free will. 
No one would notice anything out of the way about her, and they could take her where they liked. Then, when they got her safely stowed away somewhere in the wilds of Poland or Russia, of course, Siemens, alias Banfield, could make what terms he liked with her. That's what they've done it for. He couldn't have any other motive. Harold Enstone had got nearer to the facts than any of his hearers really believed, and it was well for him that he did not know the whole of the horrible truth. He wanted all his energy and wits about him if Grace was to be found, and the knowledge that she was threatened by the hideous fate that Kara Natif and her husband had doomed her to might well have gone far towards unhinging his mind for the time being. "'Well, I must say there might be something in that,' said Mrs. Grover, who had, or believed she had, a very strong leaning towards the occult, and was already inclined to look upon the famous doctor and director of the institute as the high priest of a new religion. Everyone says that Dr. Ramal does possess the most remarkable powers, but, Mr. Enstone, I am perfectly convinced that he would never use them for such an abominable purpose as that. He is far too distinguished, and, I am certain, too good a man to lend himself to anything of that sort. Well, for the sake of your confidence, I hope he is, Mrs. Rowell Grover, but he is an Oriental, and I know enough about the East to trust an Oriental about as far as I could throw him with one hand. But that's not the question now, and we've troubled you quite enough. You had better come back and sleep at my place, Hargreaves. Then, if you are inclined for a manhunt on the continent, we'll be off by the mail tomorrow morning. Of course, I shall have to put off that business in the North for the present, but don't let me haul you away unless you feel you can come without hurting things. I think the others will be able to fix that business up now if we send them a wire, giving them the full powers to act, replied Hargreaves, on whom the excitement of the prospective chase had already taken hold. And if I can be of the slightest use to you, I'm there. Of course you can, said Enstone. You're just the man I want, and I don't think it will be quite the sort of journey that will be good for one to be alone on. I should think not, said the colonel. And if I can be of any service to you here, of course, command me as one entirely at your disposal. For instance, as you'll be pretty busy, suppose I wire to all the likely hotels in Paris, find out where they are stopping, and let you know, say, at the Bristol? We've an office near here that's open all night, and as they went over in Simmons' yacht, of course, we can find out its whereabouts. And now, just before you go, you must have a whiskey and soda to help you on your way. Enstone and Hargreaves drove to the prince's gardens in almost absolute silence, only broken now and then by the strange oaths in many languages which escaped between Harold's tightly clenched teeth. His friend knew what his feelings must be, and respected them. He had not been married quite as long as Enstone, and so it was not difficult for him to sum up the situation. When Harold opened the door with his latchkey, a footman rose from a chair and straightened himself up in a somewhat sleepy fashion, and said, "'There's a gentleman in the library to see you, sir. "'I told him you were out of town, "'but he said he thought he would wait till midnight "'in case you did come back. "'I think the gentleman's an American, sir. "'This is his card, sir.' "'Harold took it up and looked at it, and read, "'Albert J. Cantor, 150 Water Street, Liverpool.' "'Can't say I know the gentleman,' said Harold. "'But come along, Hargreaves. "'We may as well go and make his acquaintance.' I suppose it's something important, or he wouldn't be quite so persistent. As they went into the library, a tall, well-dressed man got out of an armchair and came to meet them. He was a man of about fifty, well-preserved and set up, 
and with the iron-gray hair and dark mustache so often found among Americans who have fought hard in the battle of life and won. Mr. Cantor, I believe. My name is Enstone. I am afraid we have kept you waiting a long time. This is my friend, Mr. Hargreaves. We have only just come back from the north of England. Good evening, Mr. Enstone, said the stranger, with just the slightest transatlantic intonation. I am afraid it is I who have taken the liberty, but I had an urgent cable from my old friend Judge Bromyard, mayor of Pine Bluff City, at Liverpool this morning about you and a mutual friend of ours. And as I happen to be in the country and know the man pretty well, I thought I had better come on right ahead as advance guard. Four old citizens of Pine Bluff will be here the day after tomorrow to complete the identification you ask for beyond doubt. I have wired to you in the north to the address your man gave me. But I reckon you won't have had that yet, as it only went this afternoon. Anyway, I thought I'd wait a bit in case you did arrive. Quite right, Mr. Cantor, said Harold, putting his finger on the bell-push. Sit down. Of course you will take a whiskey and soda and have a cigar. My man ought to have offered you something before. Now, about this identification. I am sorry to say that only this very day the man that I believe to be Collier Bounfield married a Polish princess and went off to the continent, and, what is more, the happy couple managed in some mysterious way to persuade my wife to go with them at a few moments' notice, and without letting me know. To be quite frank, I suspect foul play. If Collier Banfield has any hand in it, you can bet your life it won't be any too clean a business, replied the American. I knew him pretty well in the rough days out there, and I never knew anything good of him yet. And so he's blossomed out into Headley Simmons, millionaire, railway king, gold king, and all the rest of it. That's what has to be proved yet, replied Enstone. But personally, I feel morally certain of it. But at present, as you will understand, I am rather more concerned about my wife. Mr. Hargreaves and I are crossing to Paris by the next train to see if we can get on his tracks. Well, said Mr. Cantor, if there's anything like a chance of running Collier Banfield down by a man who knows him from the roots of his hair to the soles of his feet, and doesn't like a little bit of him, and can be of any service to you, I reckon I'll come too. Nothing would please me better, replied Enstone. Hello, what's that? Sounds like a wire. A thundering double knock resounded through the quiet hall, and presently the door opened and a footman came in with a telegram marked for urgent delivery. Harold almost snatched it out of his hand, tore it open, and at the next moment said to Hargreaves, Well, I'll be kicked. Read that. And Hargreaves read, Mr. Simmons and Princess married today, took sudden resolve to run over to Paris with them, and now they have persuaded me to go with them to her castle Natifburg, northeastern Poland. Will you follow when business is settled? Good sport, and delighted to see you. Grace. The telegram had been sent from Calais to Enstone, and repeated, via Newcastle, by an intelligent clerk who knew that Harold had left by the special. "'Either you are entirely wrong,' said Hargreaves, "'or it is a trap.' "'I believe it is a trap,' said Harold. "'And anyhow, Grace is in it, so I'm going. "'Mr. Cantor, if you care to join us on the trip, "'will you meet us at Charing Cross a little before nine? "'I'll be there.' replied the American, meaningly, his hand wandering instinctively towards his hip pocket. And if Collier Banfield really is in it, I guess we ought to have some good sport before we get back. I hope so very much, said Harold. Now, we may as well have a smoke and a drink, 
and see if we can knock out some sort of a plan of campaign. End of chapter 30